So about a year ago, um, Marla and I were trying to figure out whether we should move to Boston and pastor this crazy congregation called Cornerstone. And, um, and I remember praying and saying, God, if I go there, could you make sure and give us a process for Cornerstone to find the future that you want it to, to have in your kingdom? And the vitality pathway that we keep talking about was God's answer to that prayer. Um, so I want to just kind of put some energy behind that invitation. June 14th, after the service, we are going to gather for the next part of the Vitality Pathway. It's called EPIC, and EPIC stands for Empowering People and Inspiring Change. The scriptures, in the scriptures, God says that before he gets ready to do something, he tells his people ahead of time. This is the process that we think God's going to use to clue us in to what God wants Cornerstone to become. And it will be shaping our next three to five to seven, ten years together. So um, mark your calendars and, if at all possible, be here um, for that workshop. All right, sermon today is called Work and the Mission of God. Um, Subtitle, Our Work Matters to God. So let me give you some statistics um, to confirm something that you already know, okay? Um, This is, um, first one here is from Gallup. Gallup... um, defines engaged employees, okay? Engaged employees are those who are involved in, enthusiastic about, and committed to their work and workplace, right? That's what an engaged employee is, according to um, Gallup, the polls that they do. They, they do a thing called State of the American Workplace. They, it's actually a rolling survey that you could go on their website and find out what the most recent numbers are from this week when they surveyed Americans in the workplace. All right? They report that only 31.5 of American workers are engaged at work. So those of you that aren't math majors, that means two out of three workers in America is not thriving at work and perhaps just a little bit annoyed that they're at work. Which you know if you go to some stores, right? that you are an annoyance to many of the employees that you meet um, in many um, companies around the U.S., all right? Then, so only one-third are actively engaged. They report that 51% of American workers are not engaged. They've shown up, but they don't want to be there. 51%, which would mean if we're representative, half of us when we go to work don't really feel like being at work. Um, And then the last numbers that Gallup gave on this was 17.5% of American workers are actively disengaged, which they say means that they are sabotaging and undermining the goals of the workplace on purpose. All right? Almost two in ten. You know who you are, okay? (laughs) Are sabotaging. They are. Think of what that means about the American workplace. And, um, It's worse for your generation, those of you who are millennials. Because Gallup goes on to report, in the same report, millennials are the least engaged group in the workplace. 28% of you are all of you that are... So about one in four of you um, are actually engaged. Three out of four of you are not. They write, although the economy is improving, workers in this generation may not be getting the jobs they'd hoped for coming out of college. Gallup's employee engagement data reveals that millennials are particularly less likely than other generations 
to say that they have the opportunity to do their best work at work. This finding suggests that millennials may not be working in jobs that allow them to use their talents and strengths, thus creating disengagement. All right, another point to the millennial experience. This one is from the Barna Research Group. Barna reports, um, and they did a survey of, of young people leaving the church. And they said, what can we learn about young people leaving the church? And young people they defined as um, 18 to 29 years old. And they say 84% of Christians between those ages of 18 to 29, 84% of Christians say they have no idea of how the Bible applies to their professional interests. No clue. And I wonder whether those data points are connected. Whether the point that, that we are disengaged in the workplace and we have no clue what Christianity has to say to us in our workplace. So, question, raise your hands. When's the last time, I've got to ask it differently. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on how your workplace matters to God? Okay, get your hands up higher because I want to see. That is atypical, and I'm really encouraged, okay? Um, and the reason that it's atypical is I was at a conference last fall where they, they reported that very few Christians have ever heard anybody talk about what the Scripture says to them in their workplaces. So the conclusion at this conference that I was at is that the church has paid insufficient attention to what it means for us to, as Christians to be involved in our workplaces. Now, one of the things I'm kind of encouraged about, again, the millennials, most of your generation, you guys seem to be pretty committed to more integration in your lives. You, are, you seem like you're not going to be as willing, at least so far, to, to become workaholics, to burn out in your workplace. You want more of an integration of your faith and your work. But if you don't have a grip on the biblical theology of work, then you have nothing to anchor what you are longing for in the integration of your faith and work. So at Cornerstone, I hope that part of our, uh, the character of our disciple-making here at Cornerstone will be, I hope that we will become known not as, as a church that doesn't just care about what you do on Sundays, but is actually caring about what you do the other 313 days of the year. I want Cornerstone to become known as a church that doesn't just care about your spiritual practices with Jesus and with the church, but also cares about your spiritual practices of engaging fully in the workplace. Ultimately, I want Cornerstone to be known as a church that is committed to and effective in equipping you, not just in spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual activities, but in your workplace as well. Now, most of you know, if you've been around here at all, you know that I'm pretty committed to helping people find their holy callings, okay? It's sort of like the Geico gad. Yeah, everybody knows that, okay? Pastor Bill wants you to find your holy calling, all right? What you probably don't know yet is that when I'm thinking of your holy calling, I'm not just thinking of the things that you do with the church and in your, your missional lifestyle. When I'm thinking of holy calling, I want you also to know how your work, whatever your work is, I want you to know how that ties into um, the mission of God. And so before we get on here, I need to say this. Um, you don't have to be paid to be a worker, okay? A bunch of students are here. 
You're not getting money. You're spending money, okay? Your work is your studies, all right? Um, some of you are going to be um, stay-at-home parents, okay? Stay-at-home parents work 24-7 harder than the most of us will ever work. So it's not a matter of are you getting paid. Your work is whatever it is that God has assigned to you to do in your life. So I just want to make that clear so that um, you're not excluding yourself. All right. Um, it's primarily the 16th century reformers who recovered for us this idea that, that ordinary work matters to God. In the scriptures we see that. In the scriptures we see that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. But through the, the, the Middle Ages, the church started to get this, this false idea that holy calling only applied to priests and monks and nuns. So there was this idea that developed that said that, that the only ones who were called by God were clergy and those who were supposed to live holy lives. It's the 16th century reformers, and Martin Luther started it, but Calvin picked up on it, and the Anabaptists picked, on it, picked up on it as well. The reformers recovered the biblical concept that every form of work is part of the mission of God. So they started to erode this distinction between people like me who are clergy who are a little more special than people like you who aren't, all right? Which is simply not in the scriptures. It took the reformers to recover it. In the process, Martin Luther made points such as, he said, the butcher's work is just as important as the work of the priest. What that did is that recovered for us a biblical concept of every form of work. And it became known as the Protestant work ethic because it came out of the Reformation. Well, in the last um, 10, maybe 12, 15 years, there's been an explosion of literature of Christians thinking deeply about faith and the workplace. And they're not just thinking about how do I share Jesus more at work? That can be part of it, but that's not been the, the major part of the literature. There's just been this explosion of literature about how we can, can engage in our workplace to fulfill the mission of God. And then in the last um, maybe three to five years, um, there's been more thinking about how our work is, the way, is one of the primary ways. Most of us spend 8, 10, 12, 15 hours a day in some kind of work. And in the past, it was sort of like that was sort of written off that our, our spiritual stuff is what we do on Sunday and what we volunteer with and when we do our small groups and when we are doing our spiritual disciplines. But there's been this, this rich literature that's been developing about how Christians engaged in the workplace are really attending to the work of God as we are attending to the common good of the culture around us. I encourage you, just, just um, start um, doing some searches and start doing some reading on the new literature about Christians in the workplace. And what I want to give you today is I want to give you the biblical foundation. There are two foundational truths to the biblical theology of work. And I want you to walk out of here absolutely knowing what those foundational truths are. And there are a lot of reasons for that. When we understand the biblical theology of work, then we can stop thinking that work is a necessary evil. All right? There is this idea that work is the curse, but that's not the biblical order. And we'll see how the biblical theology of work corrects that impression. When we get the biblical theology of work, we're going to grasp the meaning of what we do 
so that we have a perspective, so we do what we do as unto the Lord, so that we fulfill what we are called to do for the common good. Biblical theology of work is going to correct some things. It's going to correct the idolatry of careerism. Many of you have been indoctrinated in your educational training that your career is the most important thing in your life. Secular ideas of, of work try to convince us that, that our purpose at work, I'm sorry, back that up, try to convince us that our purpose at work is to fulfill ourselves. Secular ideas say that's why you work. You work to get fulfillment. If you don't get it, you switch jobs. Secular ideas of work try to convince us that our significance is equated to our promotions in our career. Secular ideas of work try to convince us that what is important is expediency and end results and bottom lines, not the, the ethical credibility of the process along the way. Secular views of work try to trick us into overworking for the praise of people and to make more money as a substitute for balanced Christian lives. And secular ideas of work want us to check our Christian beliefs at the door and do not want us to engage and even think like followers of Jesus in the workplace. The biblical theology of work will free us from lots of these ideas. It's going to free us from that biblical idea that I talked about before, that spiritual work is somehow more special than ordinary work. Um, The biblical theology of work is going to help us stop disconnecting the weekend from the work week. In our culture, many people live for the weekend. And Christians have this incredible disconnect of Sunday from Monday through Friday. And the biblical theology of work is going to help reconnect those. Biblical theology of work is going to give us strength to resist selling our souls for success. It's going to give us strength to resist compromising our integrity. The biblical theology of work is also a way to protect us from the injustices that happen in most of our careers. At some time in most of our careers, there will be something unjust that is done to you. If you have put all your marbles of significance into your workplace and you don't have a balance of the biblical theology of work, when that injustice happens, it is going to wreck you completely. When we understand the biblical theology of work, we're going to figure out that we don't just have to to think about how do we serve Christ at work, but we more and more realize that we are serving Christ through our work. And that is hugely significant. Serving Christ isn't something we paste over our workplaces. It is part of what's happening throughout our workplaces. The biblical theology of work affirms the intrinsic purposefulness of work. Here's how one author wrote it. One author said, For many people, work is just a job. It's an occupation that begins and ends with a paycheck. Hence, disengagement, right? This person writes, But wherever Christianity is gone... It has etched a halo, as it were, around man's daily labor. For slaves and carpenters, it reinterpreted work into divinely appointed tasks by which God is glorified and people's needs are satisfied. In other words, Christianity has brought meaning into the workplace. The state of the American workplace the disengagement would be vastly improved if Christians would recover 
and an understanding of the biblical theology of the work. And here's the crazy thing. It's not that complicated. I'm going to give you the two foundational truths of the biblical theology of work. They are found in the first two chapters of the Bible. They're introduced there and lived out for the rest of the scriptures. But the first one is in the very first verse of the Bible. So those of you who know Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-1 says what? In the beginning... My wife's the only one I heard. (laughs) All right, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what God was doing during the time period of creation? You know, when the earth was formless and void. Do you know what God was doing? You know what God was doing when he said, let there be light? Do you know what God was doing when he created the vegetation and he created the animals and he created people? You know what God was doing? Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, tell us. On the seventh day, God had finished his work. There's someone who has has paraphrased Genesis 1.1. Instead of saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he paraphrased and said, in the beginning, there was work. Because here's what we know. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from his work of creation. The scriptures begin with God at work. And it is full of the testimonies of God who is a worker. And as Tim Keller says in the book that we're reading for our small groups, Every Good Endeavor, he makes the point, he says, that is a radically different concept of work than the Greeks and the Romans had. For Christianity... Our God, the God of the Bible, is a worker. The God of the Bible understands the possibilities and the frustrations of the workplace. So, beginning in the scriptures, God is working. We find that throughout the scriptures, God is constantly at work. And we come to the end of the scriptures, and God is still working. He is constantly engaged in his works of creation and sustenance and providence and judgment and redemption. God did not make the world and wind it up and throw it out there so that he could ignore it. The God of the Bible is constantly, thoroughly engaged in working within his creation. Psalm 121 tells us God never slumbers from his work of protecting his people. Psalm 104 tells us God is always at work to provide the needs of creation. Psalm 107 tells us God works to rescue people. Also tells us that God is known for his wonderful works of creation. Ephesians 1.20 says God exerted the work of his mighty strength when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God does what? God works for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Ephesians 3.20, God's power is at work within us. Philippians 1.6, God has begun a good work in us that he will bring to fulfillment until the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. Philippians 2.13, God is at work within us to will and to do what pleases him. The number one foundational truth of the biblical theology of work is God is a worker. And then when you continue your study, you find out that Jesus is constantly at work as well. 
Jesus says, he says, I've come to do the work of my Father. He also says, God is constantly at work, and I am am joining him in that work. In Colossians, Paul tells us that God, part of Jesus' work, is to hold together the universe. In Christian thinking, we understand that if God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because we also read in the Scriptures the Holy Spirit is a worker, if God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit withdrew from creation, it would utterly implode. It could not survive. So the foundational truth of the biblical theology of work is that our God is a worker. Tim Keller, this is every good endeavor. Tim Keller um, says this is not the conception of the gods of the Greek people. It's the Hebrew and Christian scriptures that show us a God who is dedicated and engaged and understands the possibilities and frustrations of work. Work is an essential part of the character of God. The second truth is very easy to extrapolate from the first truth. Because men and women were created in the image of God, we therefore are created so that work is an essential part of the human character as well. So on Genesis 1, 27 to 30. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. I have given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. You see what just happened? God created human beings in his image and then he entrusted human beings with the care of creation. The biblical theology of work understands that our work is to be co-rulers with God in the care of creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Have you ever wondered how it is that human beings can be so incredibly creative in technology and in medicine and in research and in exploration? Well, it's because God created human beings to co-rule, to co-steward all of creation. Everything in creation was given to mankind to figure out how to steward with God. When we work... We are joining God in his stewarding of the common good. Which, by the way, is part of why we are so wrecked when we are unemployed and underemployed. There is such, woven into the human person, there is is such this part of, of, of doing work that matters that when we can't do that, it messes us up. Which tells us in the church that Providing jobs, creating jobs, job training is not just something for the government. It's not something for somebody else to do. But this is a spiritual matter for the well-being of the human race that the church needs to attend to as well. Right? Theologians call this mandate that God gave to man to, to watch over creation, they call it the, the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. 
This is a command to God, to human beings, to always be attending to the common good. So, on those two foundational truths of, of biblical theology of work, um, when we go to work as followers of Jesus, it's not about an economic exchange. It's not about financial remuneration. It's not the way to achieve the American dream. When Christians go to work, foundationally, it is about contributing to the creative care of the world as partners with God. Here's what it comes down to. Work is an ordinance of God for the human race. It is part of what we are absolutely called to do. It's interesting. Too often, and not too often, but we read the fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment, we read it as a call to rest. But it's not just a call to rest. It is implicitly also a command to work. So Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's our call to rest. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That is a command to practice Sabbath. It is also an implicit command to practice work, to be diligent about work, to be engaged in the work where God has placed us. There is this divinely appointed rhythm of work and rest. And we can disobey the fourth commandment in one of two ways. We can disobey by refusing to rest on that one day, or we can disobey it by refusing to work on the other days. All right, when you get this this concept of what God has invited the human race to do with him, when you get that in your head, it will blow your mind. The psalmist in Psalm 8 was trying to wrestle with what is, how how awesome and glorious is this idea that we are co-regents with God. So let me read to you Psalm 8 so that you get an idea of how this will affect you. O Lord, our Lord, the psalmist writes, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky, so here's this human person looking up at creation and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should even care for them. Yet, you made them, humans, only a little lower than God. And crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made. Putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals. The birds in the sky. The fish in the sea. The echoes of of Genesis 1. And everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we understand that this is what we do when we go to work. It changes everything about how We think about work. And we figure out work is not part of the curse. Work is one of the great blessings that God has given to us. And that should change you tomorrow morning when you show up at your workplace. Tim Keller says, We are all called to stand in for God here in the world. Exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice regents 
We share in doing the things that God has done in creation. We bring order out of chaos, creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. This is a major part of what we were created to be. So when we are living into the biblical theology of work, we don't wake up on Monday morning and groan. We wake up on Monday morning and say, this is my next opportunity to join God for the next 7, 8, 10, 12 hours of this day to attend to the common good by fulfilling the purposes that I'm supposed to do here in this workplace. Dorothy Sayers, an older writer, she writes about um, the biblical theology of work as well. She wrote, work should be looked upon not as necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man finds its proper exercise and delight and so fulfills itself to the glory of God. Work is a natural exercise and function of man. It is not primarily a thing one does to live. It is a thing one lives to do. It is the medium in which we offer ourselves to God. When we get this, the church is going to change the American workplace again because we will be models of engagement in a culture that is just putting up with the drudgery of work. And you know when, they, when we're going to have our greatest impact? It's not going to be when we're doing the jobs that we're, we're naturally having fun doing. Our greatest impact is when Christ followers model how to do work glorious that is mundane and that is very ordinary. That's when the world's going to say, there must be something different about how you're thinking. So here's what I hope you're going to, you will do this summer. Um, in regards to your thinking about work. I hope you'll get into a small group, okay? Uh, we're going to go through Tim Keller's book. We're going to discuss things like, like the biblical design of work. We're going to talk about the drudgery of work. What happens when there's frustration in the workplace? Because here's one of the things. It's easy to have the biblical theology of work, but when you start to engage in the actual workplace, you're going to find out sometimes it's really hard to love work. All right? We're going to talk about that in our small groups this summer. So, um, sign up for a small group today um, so that you can be part of them. We've got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday groups, and I think there are some other possibilities um, perhaps opening up, so, um, so do that today. Um, and then, I hope this summer, because next week James Choi is going to bring a second sermon on the same theme, um, I hope that this summer you will start to do some of the kind of creative, hard thinking about how your particular work, whether you're serving coffee at Starbucks or whether you're designing um, some kind of a rocket or some kind of a radar, or whether you're studying um, neuroscience, I hope that this summer that each of you will do creative thinking to see, to kind of draw the lines, to see directly where your work is doing something that God wants to do for the common good. And now lots of Christians seem to have a hard time connecting their work to God's work. So let me just give you an example that's that hopefully will just get you, kind of free up your, your creativity. In order for you to, um, to eat a muffin for breakfast this morning, in order for you to get something at Billy's, in order for you to get, get your Starbucks coffee, all right, there was a whole chain of people and processes to enable you to do that. So when you pray, 
Dear Father, give me this day my daily bread. You hardly know what it takes for God to answer that prayer. So if you had a muffin from from Billy's this morning, somebody had to plant the wheat that was going to make that muffin. Somebody had to educate that that person who planted the wheat to make that muffin. Somebody had to design the tractors to, to plow the fields, to plant the seeds, to make the wheat, to make that muffin. Somebody had to be a tool and die worker to make the parts of the tractor that were used to sow the ground, to plant the wheat, to make that muffin. And if you keep that chain going, once that wheat grows, then it has to get to market. Some banker somewhere is probably funding a way for that wheat to get to some kind of a market. That's eventually going to go to a mill. Somebody has to get it to that mill, so there's a truck driver. Somebody has to to extract the crude oil from the ground and refine it so that it can go into the truck to take that wheat to the market. Then once it gets there, it's going to get milled, and somebody's got to prepare all that. There have to be business people involved in that entire process. There have to be people thinking about the futures of wheat. Also, that you could have a muffin this morning when you pray, dear God, give me this day my daily bread. That doesn't even count what it took for the bakery to make it and for the spreadsheet designs to, to run the businesses that actually got it to you. And I don't even think about the coffee, which has another whole chain of processes for you to get the coffee. Can you imagine what would happen in this world if work just stopped? It would be the same thing as if God withdrew from creation. Our world would implode upon itself. Each of you in every form of legitimate work is somewhere in a chain of processes that God is using to accomplish his purposes. It's interesting, when we look at God as a worker in the Bible... He's variously described as an artist, as a singer, as a performer, as a metal worker, as an architect, as a banker, as a businessman, as a teacher, and on and on and on and on the list goes when we read about how God, the worker, functions in the scriptures. Then, just I'll wrap up with this. I hope that this year... This next year here at Cornerstone, we're going to start some vocation discussion groups. What these are intended to be are groups of us in the same kind of spheres of work that we as brothers and sisters in Christ will gather together with others in medicine, others in teaching, others in public service, others in in business. I'm hoping that we will start some vocation discussion groups where we will think more deeply about how do we affect cultural change in our area. I've talked to those of you at Berkeley. I'm looking forward to when we sit down with with Berkeley students in arts and entertainment and think about how we can strategically fulfill God's functions in that arena so that we can then influence our culture. Same thing for those of you who are in medicine. Same thing for those of you who are in business. It's time for Christians to become strategic in this area. In conclusion, our work matters to God way more than we thought it mattered. Even if you're just serving coffee at Starbucks. Your work matters to God more than you can imagine. Um, The amazing thing is, our work is an extension of the work of God. When we go to work tomorrow, God is showing up through us to attend to the common good.
And so there's, this quote isn't on the screen. Um, there's a guy by the name of Steve Garber. He wrote a book called Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. I love how he says this. He says, there is wonder and glory, joy and meaning in the vocations that are ours. There is good work to be done by every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve all over the face of the earth. There are flowers to be grown, songs to be sung, bread to be baked, justice to be done, mercy to be shown, beauty to be created, good stories to be told, houses to be built, technologies to be developed, fields to farm, and children to educate. All day, every day, there are wounds and wonders at the very heart of life if we have the eyes to see. And seeing, learning to pay attention, is where our vocation begins. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just, being immersed in this for the last few weeks, I, I just echo what the psalmist says. What is man? That you would even notice us and take care of us. Yet you have created us to be just a little bit lower than you to oversee the work of your hands. Will you teach us? I mean, there are parts of the Protestant work ethic that were just imbalanced and messed up. But would you teach us the glory and the depth of your ethic of work so that we quit trying to be Christians at work to the exclusion of being Christians through our work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.